0: When Carly Flumer was 27 and working on her master's degree in healthcare communications, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Though she was successfully treated for the cancer, she now must live with the consequence of having had her thyroid removed, which requires lifelong care and treatment. The experience has turned Flumer into a patient advocate as she has sought to share her story with others. We spoke to Flumer about her cancer journey her experience in dealing with physicians who often spoke in terms she didn't understand, and what she'd like other rare disease patients to learn from her experiences. Carly, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: We're going to talk about your experience being diagnosed with a rare cancer. What You learned from your interactions with the healthcare system. And how this led you to become a patient advocate? You were a graduate student. You were 21 when you were first diagnosed. What happened? How how did you come to learn that you had cancer?
1: So I was actually 27 when I was first diagnosed, um, but still in my 20s. So I think that is still relatively young. Um, But um, I was at a physical And this is why I advocate for everybody to get their physical because young people like me think that they don't need it. And they really do because it checks all of your bodily systems to make sure everything is going well. So anywho. um, So my doctor felt a lump in my throat and he said um, to go get an ultrasound. And so I did. It's very important to follow up with all your scans and blood work too. Um, So, um, I did that, and they they found the lump, which ended up being um benign, but then they also found my cancer. um, so it was kind of found by uh, mistake. and um, from there, they you know, they told me I needed to see a surgeon to get it taken care of.
0: Well, what was the actual diagnosis you got?
1: Oh, sure. So I got um stage one papillary thyroid cancer, which is the most common form of thyroid cancer.
0: The thyroid is one of those parts of the body that I think most people don't think about unless they need to. Mm -hmm. What's the role of the thyroid?
1: Sure, so um, I'm glad you said that because I didn't know what a thyroid was until they were like, oh yeah, it has cancer. Um, So um, the thyroid plays um, a role in so many bodily systems that you would not even think of, um, including your heart rate and your metabolism and your mood and your energy levels and, um, your bowel movements and your menstrual cycles if you're a female. Um, and so, so many different things that, uh, this little gland, um, controls that works with the pituitary gland in your brain. Um, and so um, if you don't have it, um, then you essentially uh, pass on.
0: At, at the same time, given all of the regulatory roles the thyroid plays, did you have any other signs of something wrong with your thyroid?
1: No, you know, I was tired a lot, um, but I was also, in graduate school, and I was working full-time, and so I figured that was kind of normal. Um, But otherwise, I didn't have any other symptoms, and my symptoms were kind of void um, during my treatment process, so um, I was pretty lucky.
0: Still, the word cancer has a certain weight, I would imagine, with anyone. What's it told like? what's it like being told you have cancer and how did you react as a 27 year old who Mm -hmm. I imagine is looking at, you know, you're in graduate school and your life's ahead of you. What, what was the impact of that?
1: Sure. So, you know, I think because I didn't have symptoms, I was just kind of like, um, okay, well, this is how my life is going to be from now on. And I just kind of went along with it. Um, you know, I, I did what my doctors said that I had to do, and, um, you know, I just went went along with a plan, but it was my mom who came with me to every appointment who really, she really did the research on the disease and helped to educate me about, um, you know, different, uh, different treatment options, as well as the surgeon who I saw who um, was extremely helpful, very dedicated to the practice, very kind. And he really helped me to understand what the role of the thyroid was and um, what the treatment, how it would affect my quality of life over time. Um, And so, you know, I think I I don't know if I was scared um, and was just kind of like, okay, well, this is how it is. Um, or if, you know, if I was just, you know, like, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. I think, you know, I was, I was sad. Um, and I, and I was scared, but at the same time, I was just like, well, this is how I feel. And it's kind of normal. So maybe this is what having cancer feels like. And my case is just a little bit different. I
0: I know you and I have talked about the fact that your doctor told you that you had a good cancer. Uh Uh, Imagine people can figure out what he meant by that. But as the person with the diagnosis, what effect does his words have on you when he says something like that?
1: Sure. Um, so you know what I, um, I actually really took that to heart when I first heard that I didn't take that with a grain of salt as I should have, because, um, you know, uh, I worked at a hospital at the time when I was diagnosed and I had asked my doctors, um, I, you know, I have cancer and um, I would like to know who you would recommend uh, that I see as a surgeon. And so when they said, oh, what type of cancer do you have? I said, um, and I had mentioned thyroid, they said, oh, well, that's really nothing to be concerned about. Um, I was just like, oh, well, maybe they're right since I don't have any symptoms. And this is really what thyroid cancer is, you know, because I obviously don't have um, any experiences with that. And nobody in my family had it. So I don't I didn't really have any um, experience um, to fall back on. Um, And so uh, I was just like, well, maybe this maybe they're right. You know, maybe this is how it how it is. Um, And maybe I got very lucky. Um, but you know, as I went through, uh, my treatment and through kind of my cancer journey, I learned that that is, be further from the truth. And doctors really need to stop saying that because although the majority of cases are very good with thyroid cancer and we have a very great prognosis rate, at least for the papillary kind, um, you know, at the end of the day, it is a, it is a disease that affects many people and it shouldn't be, you know, um, it shouldn't. Be taught, I guess, for lack of a better word, talked down about just because um, of the good prognosis, right? It gives patients a false outlook of how things may be because each patient is different and each patient is going to have their own experience. And so for them to tell them, oh, you know, don't worry, it's okay, you know, I appreciate, you know, the comfort, but at the same time, I don't want it to be sugarcoated to a point where my expectations are completely, um, different from, from what I, you know, should expect down the road, should, you know, anything happen or my prognosis change.
0: Well, what treatment options did your doctor tell you you had?
1: Sure. So I, um, I had a tumor on the right side of my thyroid. And so, um, I was given the option to take out just the right side of my thyroid because um, I didn't know this, but you have two sides to your thyroid, uh, two lobes, and you can live with one half of your thyroid um, just, just fine. Um, and uh, if you take out the entire thing, you have to be on a supplement, um, and that will pretty much replicate all of the Uh, functions that your thyroid does and so um, I was given the option to remove just the half of the tumor or to remove the entire thing and my doctor you know he really talked to me about that and he was really considerate of what my values were as a patient and I said you know what I'm really focused on my quality of life because I am I am younger and I you know would like to have a better quality of life going down the line, and you know, having to take a supplement for the rest of my life does not sound ideal. Um, and so, I opted to do, um, I opted to do the just the it's called a, a partial thyroidectomy, where just one lobe, the the lobe with the cancer, was removed. And so, I did that. Um, and then, um, as I don't know if this is typical procedure or not, but they did pathology on um, lymph nodes, meaning they took out lymph nodes surrounding um, the area where my tumor was to see if they were cancerous um, because uh, what that means is um, depending on how many lymph nodes are, are positive for cancer, it could can mean that there are more lymph nodes in your body that have cancer and and we just, we just don't know about it. And so, I got a call two days after my surgery and I was in recovery at home. My surgeon said, well, we, we did uh, pathology on your lymph nodes and over 80% of them had cancer. So what that means is that, um, unfortunately, you no longer have a choice in the matter. We have to take out the other half of your thyroid um, and we'll do that in three months. We want you to heal, but you're going to have to come back. And we're going to remove the other half of your thyroid, and so because um, the thyroid is uh, very close to many um, vital other uh, other vital um, organs, including um, your esophagus and your trachea and your voice box um, and your larynx and different things like that. Um, it is very, you know, you, you really need a, a, a surgeon who specializes in thyroid surgeries because, you know, one nick and, you know, your voice can be altered. And so um, it was very important that, you know, I had researched my doctor um, who had done thousands of thyroid surgeries, but anywho. Um, so uh, I uh, had my second surgery and, you know, it's not a guarantee that all the thyroid tissue is removed with that surgery, because like I was saying, the thyroid is close to many other vital um, organs and and glands. And so um, it is possible for a surgeon to, you know, miss some, miss some cells, miss some thyroid cells. Um, You know, no surgeon is perfect. And, And so the next step was to receive what's called radioactive iodine therapy, which is a form of radiation that is taken orally, um, and so it you know it's not radio it's not you know radiation that is directed to one part of your body, but it's it's directed to your entire body. So you take a pill and you become radioactive throughout your entire body, and so what that means is you have to stay isolated from people and pets for a certain period of time, which kind of prepped me for coronavirus. So thank you, thyroid cancer, for that. Um, So um, over time, you know, within a few days, you're able to come within um, a certain number of feet from from your parents. So I was living with my parents at the time. So when I first came out of uh, radiation, you know, I could – I could, you know, be within 20 feet. And then over time I could, you know, do 10 feet and then six feet and then three feet. And um, the radiation, the main way that it uh, releases from your body is through your urine. And so um, when I uh, went to the bathroom, I had to flush three times. And when I um, when when I uh, washed my hands, I had to wash two times. And then any sheets that I used uh, had to be thrown away at the end of my radiation treatment. And so it was a very involved process um, that also required um, a very immense um, preparation, um, which I can go into the detail of that, but I'm sure you have many other questions for me. Um, but yeah, so that was the extent of... My first year of treatment, I was diagnosed in January of 2017, and I finished both of my surgeries and radiation by December of that year.
0: What are the implications of living without a thyroid?
1: Because you don't have a thyroid anymore, you have to take a supplement. Um, And uh, like I said, it basically replaces um, all of the functions that your thyroid did. And when you are first placed on the supplement, um, it's basically, the dosage is basically a guess by an endocrinologist or an oncologist, depending on who you see. So um, the dosage is guessed based on your age and your weight and your gender. And so um, they basically take a look at you and say, okay, well, we're gonna start off on this dose. and they, um, And they measure you over time with um, a couple of your thyroid hormones called T three and T four, and those will determine uh, what your what your dosage is doing, whether it's helping you or whether it's hurting you. And um, when you uh, do not have a thyroid anymore, you're placed into um, what's called hypothyroidism, and you want to remain hypothyroid, um, so that your levels remain stable and so that your uh, another tumor marker called the thyroglobulin remains at a very low level. So the thyroglobulin is a tumor marker um, and that is watched over time. And if it happens to uh, rise, then that means that something is, is going wrong. And so um, the uh, the supplement um which is called, I take I take the supplement called levothyroxine. Um, uh, that kind of, it kind of uh, helps to alter the thyroid uh, hormones in the body as well as the thyroglobulin. Um, and so, uh, you know, as your body changes over time, and especially for women, as we age and we enter menopause, your levels can, can be very different. And so, um and your levels um which uh, are affected by the dosage um of your medication can affect different aspects of your life. So um hypothyroidism, which is the opposite of hypothyroidism, um each one of those come with, comes with its own set of side effects. And so um you can uh be very cold or very hot, um, you can have a very um high Um, heart rate or a very slow heart rate Um, you can be um, uh, very anxious and nervous or very sad Um, your for females your menstrual cycle can be uh, affected Um, and there's just a bunch of different things that you wouldn't even consider that this little thing in your body can do and you don't realize uh, you know you don't you know the saying goes you don't know what you have until it's gone and for me, that, that was how it truly was and how it truly is with, um, with, you know, without having a, a thyroid to do all of those things for me.
0: In, in some ways, it sounds like you traded one disease for another.
1: In a way, yes. Um, you know, I, it's, it is hard to, to, you know, find the right dosage, especially as your body changes over time. Um and, and having all of those symptoms to go along with it isn't, isn't the best way to have a quality of life, but I think, you know, you have to be able to, to manage that. And, um, you know, I'd rather have the cancer out of my body um, than to be living with that.
0: But in the same sense, it sounds like, you know, in many ways you're living with a chronic condition.
1: Yep. Well,
0: how, how long a process did you go through before you were pronounced cancer-free?
1: Well, so my thyroid globulin, so again, that's my tumor marker, um, that had always been above zero, which is not ideal, um, but it was, you know, it wasn't like it was very high, but it it was above zero, and so my, my doctor, um, an, an endocrinologist um, who specializes in um, endocrine disorders, including thyroid cancer, um, she... Um, has been watching that over time, ever since my diagnosis in 2017, and I had my blood work done every three months, and I'm moving to every six months, and a scan, um, an ultrasound of my neck once a year, and so with that, um, we had been monitoring my levels of my thyroglobulin, and it had never gone down to zero in the past four four years until 2021, And so I, you know, was asking about that. And I said, you know, why isn't this going down? Um, What could be the issue? And she said, well, you know, for some patients, it, it doesn't go down and they end up being fine. And for other patients, it can take years for it to go down. And so I just kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And so I still did my blood work and I still did my yearly scans. And so in 2021, so... About almost a year ago, I did my, um, I did my earless scan, and um, I uh, had a positive uh, lymph node, um, meaning I had a lymph node in my body that was detected as cancerous. And so um, I went back to my surgeon, and I said, I'm back. Um, I have more cancer in my body, and I want it removed. Um, and so I did a third surgery in April of last year. And, um, and then recently in December of last year, so about a month ago, um, I had my blood work done and my thyroglobulin was at zero, finally. So it took me almost five years, almost six, mm, almost, um, let's see, or four, yeah, almost six years to be deemed cancer-free.
0: It sounds like your mom was there to help and support you. Did Did mm-hmm. you reach out to other patients who had been through this?
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. So because I was in graduate school during the time um, of my treatment, I was really able to apply what I was learning in my classes to um, to what I was going through with treatment and vice versa. So um,
0: and just, just for a moment, you mentioned you were in graduate school. You were studying healthcare communications.
1: I was, yes, at Boston University, but I was doing it online, so that's how, how I was able to do treatment, do school, and then also work full-time. Um, so I knew when I left graduate school that I wanted to help cancer patients, and I um, and I, you know, I had joined support groups. You know what? I didn't even know about support groups. I didn't know that they existed until after I finished all of my treatment in 2017, which was very sad. They don't talk to you about that stuff. Um, and they really should because they're immensely helpful. Um but, you know, I was talking, um, I was talking with some support group people and I learned about patient advocacy and, and the, the power of sharing your story. And I said, I can do that. My story is pretty unique since, um, you know, I was able to kind of use my graduate school courses and be able to be able to go through treatment and, and do everything at the same time and be able to u- utilize what I learned to, to, to leverage my kind to, I guess, leverage my experience and help other people. And so um, I started telling my story through different blogs. And, um, and then I started to look into different career options with cancer. And so I, um, after I left the hospital, I, um, I was uh, recruited by one of my colleagues with the National Cancer Institute, I worked as a contractor for them, where I translated scientific protocols for clinical trials into lay friendly language. And I did that for about two years. And then I recently um, started as a, a director of medical engagement for a health communications agency that focuses on recruiting patients for clinical trials for patients with cancer and rare diseases. And so that's what I've been able to do um, with my paying job, but as far as my advocacy work, um, and I've been on podcasts, you know, such as this one and and others, just telling my story and emphasizing the importance of the different aspects of cancer, including researching your physicians and um, researching different treatment options and making sure that you have a good relationship with your with your um, oncologist or whomever you see for cancer treatment and being able to um, to tell your story and um, and advocating for yourself and how important it is. And so because I didn't you know, when I when I was going through uh, my my own treatment, I didn't really do that. My mom kind of did that for me. Um, you know, and she really showed me the, the importance of kind of standing up for yourself and um, and and the health aspect world, because we I think we are taught or at least it was the um, at least it was the the norm, I guess, back in the day, so to speak, that doctors were all knowing. And that's, you know, white coat syndrome is where, you know, patients are what the, you know, what the doctor says goes. And that's kind of what the, 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 the mindset that I had. But as I started to learn more about patient advocacy, it's really, you know, what it's real, it is what the the doctor says, but it's also what the patient says too, because we are experts of our own body because we live in them every day. And so as, as a result, it really takes a, um, a good structured uh, patient physician relationship to um, to kind of inform the outcomes of treatment because if you don't have a good relationship with your physician, um, what what is your compliance going to be like um, with your treatment? Are you going to be uh, you know are you going to be you know a savvy patient and and you know go through with all of your scans and your your blood work, or are you going to be questioning about questioning everything because you don't really trust your doctor. Um, So that's where it's really important to, to understand that. And then I think, you know, physicians also need to, physicians really need to advocate for their patients as well, because um, they're, you know, they're part of the healthcare system too. And, um, you know, we're all humans. We need to be treated as such and not as, you know, numbers. And, I think that's how it is in primary care, and I'm getting off on another tangent here, but there's only so, ta- so much time that doctors have with you as, as a patient, and I think both doctors and patients are, are kind of feeling that constraint, and it's just like, you know what, I really don't feel like I have the time that I need to spend with my doctor to be able to get across the issues that I have. And so that's where patient advocacy comes in, and where it's you know preparing um, for your appointments and knowing what questions you want to ask and um, bringing any research that you find to the table and um, and saying you know what I I've read about this can you can we talk about this or you know what this is what I've been feeling or these are the questions that I have can we talk about this. Um, so that you know we don't feel like we don't as patients feel like that our time is wasted when it comes to our appointments
0: well you you were getting a degree in healthcare communications Mm -hmm. as you were going through this i want what effect did the experience of being a patient have on your studies and and what you decided to do afterwards
1: sure so you know what I really wanted to go into graduate school for health communication with an interest in like advertising and graphic design um, because I I really enjoyed that aspect I really enjoyed the the advertising process and helping get the message across um, to, to patients um, but then I was like you know what there are so many other aspects of health communication that I really did not know about and that includes um, you know building you um, uh, the the patient physician um, relationship and learning about health literacy and making sure patients understand what's coming out of a doctor's mouth, because oftentimes we don't know what's what doctors are saying to us because they're not using language that we understand. And so um, I learned all about that through my through my coursework. And I was like, you know what, I could very much be applying that to what I am going through right now. The doctors that I am talking to are using this language about different blood work and uh, blood work tests and hormones. I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. Um, And so, you know what, My, my surgeon, he saw that I didn't understand what I was saying. And he was like, would it be helpful if I drew a picture for you? And uh, you know what? That was immensely helpful because he saw that I was confused and he took the extra time to make sure that I understood what he was saying. And you know what? I, I don't know if most doctors do that. They kind of assume that, you know, if patients say they understand, they understand um, and they, they don't question it. Um, you know, which, which makes sense. But um uh, you know, again, as patients, we might be afraid to kind of speak up and just say, "Yeah, I I understand, sure," and then we leave being like, "What the heck did, did they just say to me?" And so, um, you know, I kind of learned that through all of my, my coursework that you um, that you need to have that that kind of relationship developed with your with your providers and with your whole healthcare team, and that it's really a whole effort. Um, and it's not just the it's not it's not a one sided relationship. it's not all the the patient doing all of the work it's not the physician doing all the work either it's really it's a collaborative environment where um health outcomes are affected and you know we talked about health disparities and and health inequities and that all goes along with um you know the the doctor patient relationship right now and how patients are how patients are being treated, and you know, I think the kind of, I guess, sort of silver lining of COVID has been we have seen a lot of that uh, exacerbated the the um, the inequities and um, the the disparities that that patients are facing, um, especially patients in rural areas, and African American patients, and Hispanic patients, with the vaccine rates and Um, and different things like that and it's just like this has been going on for a very long time you know in the oncology space and and in many other aspects of care and COVID is really you know it's putting a spotlight on it and saying look this has been an issue for a long time this is the time to fix it and we need to fix it right now you know
0: well if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to the doctors who cared for you what what would you tell them about the way they interacted with you
1: um you know what i um the well you know what the surgeon that i had for my first two surgeries i had for my third surgery so i had him for for every single surgery all, all aspects of my treatment and i i cannot thank him enough for the time and the patience that he had with me and my family and helping all of us to understand what my options were and how my quality of life would be affected over time. And, um, and that, you know, at the end of the day there, you know, this, this type of cancer, it wasn't going to kill me, but he still understood my worry. And he, he really took that into consideration not just as a physician, but as a human being, and I think that's something that all, all physicians really need to strive for. How did you
0: move into the the realm of patient advocacy? What what drove you in your experience to do that, and and how are you acting as a patient advocate today?
1: Um, sharing my story, I think I you know I had read about other patient stories, and I um, I was like, oh, you know what, I could I can do that too, and. Um, and so I, uh, I was networking on LinkedIn, and I happened to come across um, a gentleman who has been extremely helpful, and I'll shout him out. His name is John Novak, and he worked with a company called Inspire, um, and he got me in connection with um, the editor-in-chief at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I pitched my story, and she said, um, well, we have too many stories like yours, and I didn't really know what to think about that because I was like well um, my story is kind of different you know every patient's story is unique so I'm not sure what you mean by that And you know maybe she meant like um, we have stories from cancer from cancer patients and we're looking for a different angle um, but you know what I didn't let that stop me. I looked for other um, advocacy organizations and patient, Led organizations that would accept my story, and I just kept going from there. And I just kept sharing it and sharing it, different aspects of it and different perspectives of what it means to be a cancer patient um, and a young cancer patient. The AYA, or the, the adolescent and young adult um, advocacy or patient um, realm, is very unique because we're not, um, we're a different bucket of patients, if you will. We're not, um, we're not the pediatric um, age, but nor are we the, an older age, you know, we're kind of in between that. And so we have a lot of different aspects of life that neither the peds or the adult um, populations face, including um, choosing a career and dating and going off of your parents' health insurance for the first time um, and different things like that, you know, you know, it's not really considered um, in, when we think about people my age um, who were diagnosed with cancer at that time in their lives. And so I've kind of used um, that to leverage uh, my experience and to be able to, to bring that into different perspectives of my journey and talk about what it was like or what it is like, rather, to To be at my age and to go through all of these different aspects of life that are hard enough in the first place, much less with a cancer diagnosis, and kind of speak about that in a way that will hopefully resonate with other patients and um, you know maybe it'll give them some courage for them to share their story and be advocates for other patients because at the end of the day we are all unique, we all have our different stories, but we all have cancer. And that is the common, the common factor. And we don't want to be able to do this, or we don't want to do this alone and and by ourselves, even though we think we can sometimes, as I thought I could, I was very stubborn, and I didn't want any help. And I said, I can do this on my own. But really, um, you do need that you you do need that that friendship that familial aspect um, of care and sometimes you know all it takes is um, having somebody with cancer to share that experience with you because most other people who don't have cancer they won't um, they you know they don't know what it's like unless they've gone through it and so for for them it might be higher it might be hard for them to understand what you're really going through and they can try and empathize as much as possible. And of course we appreciate that. But at the same time, it's just like, you know what? I don't, I, I really don't think you're, you're, you're getting at, uh, what I'm really saying to you and what I'm feeling. And so that's why sharing your story with other cancer patients is so powerful because people do understand it and they are really able to say, you know what? I am, I'm going through that too. Let's talk about that.
0: And what advice would you have for other patients who may not feel they're getting information they need in an understandable way from their physicians?
1: Mm, I would say join a support group. There are tons of them online and, well, not so much in person anymore with COVID, but maybe once that's over. Um, There are Facebook support groups and on Twitter, Twitter, there, um, the healthcare aspect, the healthcare space is very active on Twitter um, and Instagram. Um, there are many different accounts you can follow to share your story. You can start a blog, um, and just sharing your experience through that can really um, be beneficial. Um, and if you are not understanding something that physician, that your physician is saying, tell them. Don't pretend that you don't, don't pretend that you understand them and then walk away uh, being confused because that's not going to help anybody. Um, You, you know, this is, again, this is a collaborative process and you don't want to be left out. This is your, this is your body and this is your life. And I would hope that you would want to take the best care of yourself to, um, to have the best life that, that you can. And so, Part of that comes with um, developing the relationship with your, with your physicians and with your care team and then with the people surrounding you and, and making sure that you're taken care of because that's really important.
0: And, and how about when communications just seem to totally break down with a doctor? Any advice you'd give to a patient?
1: Sure. Um, if you feel like you're at your wits end with a doctor, <laughs> there are always other doctors. It is okay to say, you know what, I am not, I'm just not vibing here with you. Um, I think I might need to see somebody else or seek a second opinion. And, um, and you know what, any good doctor will say, you know what, I respect that. And, um, and maybe they can even help you find somebody. You, you know, you don't have to tell if you don't feel comfortable saying that, you know, you don't have to tell them and you can find another doctor on your own. But, you know, that's why there are so many doctors out there and not every doctor is, is going to match, um, you know, what you're looking for and your values and your expectations. And so it's, it's really important to find a doctor that, that does take that into consideration and, and doesn't just focus on the numbers of your blood work and, um, they really uh, focus on you on how you are doing as a human being, and so if it takes finding another doctor to do that, then 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 do it because um, you know a physician, you know they, who knows if they might be hurt, but you know what, you're hurting yourself if you say in a if you say in a quote unquote relationship with a doctor that you just you know you don't feel like you're getting help from.
0: Carly Flummer, cancer survivor and patient advocate. Carly, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.